The following is brought to you by Andy Beach, Paul Boyer, Michael Bolick, and Will Harris. Hello and welcome everybody to the Politics, Politics, Politics podcast for July 1st, 2020. I mean, I know the navel-gazing around this virus is getting tiresome to many of you, but good lord! We're halfway through this year and it felt like it never began. Days away from July 4th. What, in a different time, would be among my favorite days of the year. Getting to see friends. That's a different story now. Uh, Either some people have already been out and seeing friends all the time because it proves a political point, or they're holed up into their closets so they might never see another human again until there's a triple vaccine. Drinking, well, I mean, Jesus, I've probably packed enough of that in for the first half of the year to last me throughout the second half of the year. Fireworks, don't even get me started. But we are here, and we've got some political news. we got some campaign news for you. We're going to talk about primaries that have happened Uh, Over the last 24 hours, including one that happened a week ago. And now we finally have uh, results for uh, we've got results out in Colorado. Did Hickenlooper survive? We also have an interview about Donald Trump's relationship with the military, his invocation of the military during the uh, protests and looting of uh, a few weeks ago. Jeez, feels like. A year ago. God, this this is the strangest time. We are in a time tunnel. It is going crazy. Anyway, we're going to talk about uh, Donald Trump's relationship with the military and some things that you can be clued into to look just a touch under the surface to see where that relationship is headed. But first, I'm back. Joe Biden lives! He spoke to humans, not a camera. Well, I mean, also cameras, but but not just a camera. He wasn't in his basement. I mean, he was still in Wilmington, Delaware. But he was in another place, not his house, likely close to his house, where there were other people, not the public, just reporters. And he was in a gymnasium. Baby steps, though. Baby steps. He is, uh, oh, you know, he was just just the barest shred. Just a dollop of of, of the gruel of campaign, of presidential campaign. What I have waited so long for, four years. Just a morsel, good sir. 
Can't you just have a presser, Mr. Biden? Oh, you did. I'm so excited. He even started it with an awful joke. I'm a few minutes late. This is my polling place. I was trying to vote early, but I couldn't find it. Anyway, thanks a lot for being here. I can't tell whether you're smiling or not, but thanks for being here. Oh, I've missed you. I've missed you, awful politician joke. I've missed you. There's been so precious few. It's been awkward webcam joke, but this, oh, trying to make a group of like 12 reporters laugh and, and failing because the joke wasn't funny. Oh, you mwah, chef's kiss. I love it. So here's the gist of Biden's speech. And I will say off the top that I don't think it was bad. It was well-delivered. It was all on prompter in general. And this is something that I've found not for people who are listening to this. Because if you're listening to this, then you care about the breakdown of things, even if you're a partisan. But in general, we're at about the point where every speech that is delivered by the presidential nominee or sitting president you're going to hear what you want to hear out of it. Your opinion on whether or not it was well-delivered is going to depend largely on your registration. So, in general, I think for Biden, this was well done. So I'm mostly going to focus on the substance and the strategy. And this is something that has not really changed throughout the Haida Biden era. Joe Biden wants to prove to you that he would be a better president by just saying what he would do as president right now. Now, I don't think this is a great strategy for two reasons. Number one, and I've said this on the podcast before, but if you want to focus on right now, then focus on things that your campaign can do to aid our currently on fire world Right now, the idea that you are saying, well, if I were president, here's what I would do, but not let me go out and do these things right now. Even if, again, I I said earlier, turn your campaign into a charity, say there's going to be a time for politics going forward. I'll be happy to answer any questions about how Donald Trump is screwing up and what I would think that he should do, but otherwise... I'm focused on getting masks and and putting money in people's hands during these hard times. Or if you're focusing on what's going to happen, then you focus on what you're going to do on, you know, the day that you find out you're the president elect. That you 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 put it all on, look, here are the problems that I'm seeing right now. God knows how bad they're going to be by the time that everybody goes to the polls. But at the very least, this is what we're going to have to do the day that I know that I run the country. You either keep it focused on right now and do something right now, or you keep it focused on election day and you focus on the things you're doing on election day. If you are focusing on the fantasy football, what you would do right now at best, it makes you look like a feckless bureaucrat. And at worst, it makes you look like a backseat driver. But 
That is the Biden strategy, and they went hard on it in this speech. In March, I set forth a detailed plan, a detailed plan for 500 federally funded testing sites across the country, as well as guaranteed emergency paid leave. Later that month, I called for a full and immediate use of the Defense Production Act, critical, critical for the delivery of supplies that were basically needed. Trump accused health care workers. How was his response? He accused health workers of stealing your masks. That's what he said. Health care workers are stealing the masks. That's why we don't have them. In April, I released a plan to secure the supply chain for personal protective equipment, surge nationwide testing with a through. He just loves plans. He loves plans. His campaign loves plans. And there was an old way of doing politics for which plans were the thing. I'm going to release my plan, blah, blah, blah. I, I don't know if our current political meta responds to that in a way that it might have in a more calm time. Action seems like what people want. But again, I've already made my point there. I will tell you why I believe these things happen. I believe that these things happen because the people that are running Biden's campaign are the people that want to be working in the White House. And so therefore, what they're going to tell Biden is what they would do. And so that's what becomes the messaging. It's fine as a resume if you want to prove to your boss how you would be better in this particular situation if it were to befall you when he gets the job. But... I don't think it's particularly good campaigning. That's my opinion. So what does he do after he details all the plans he's already released? Today, I'm releasing a plan. Should have seen that one coming. For the steps I believe Donald Trump should undertake immediately to build on the roadmap I released back in March. Just so we're all clear, this is now a plan to build on the plan that you've already planned. We're very planned out right now. Very planned out. Part of a speech like this, though, is meeting the moment. Finding what the current narrative is, what the mood of the country is, and then matching it to what your political aims are. And this, I believe, is an effective part of Biden's speech where he takes how we feel currently about the coronavirus and specifically Trump's role in handling it and turns it to his advantage. Now, here we are. More than three months later, we're hardly better prepared than we were in March. Infections are on the rise. The threat of massive spikes that overwhelm the capacity of our healthcare system is on the horizon. Americans, anxious and out of work, are fearful for their lives and their livelihoods. Donald Trump is doing next to nothing about it. Mr. President, the crisis is real. Is real. The crisis is real. And it's surging, Mr. President. I believe there is an effective narrative to be spun here where Donald Trump either wishes this thing would go away or doesn't quite believe it will be a continued danger to the country. The more Biden can hammer that and the more we deal with a world where cases are indeed going up, the more that will be hammered down as reality. I think that's effective politics right there.
I did find this particular moment, it's small, but I found it awkward. Mostly because I don't remember Donald Trump saying the, the, the predicate here. You called yourself a cheerleader. We don't need a cheerleader, Mr. President. We need a president, Mr. President. Yeah. Moving on. Biden took questions. Oh, yeah. Finally, finally, reporters get to ask Joe Biden whatever they want. But let's also remember where we are. In a high school gymnasium, every single one of these reporters handpicked by the Biden campaign. Now, wherever you sit on the idea that reporters are either liberal-leaning, and I agree with that, or Democrats with bylines, uh, as, as Rush Limbaugh calls them, they're, they're agents of the Democratic Party, whatever, okay? Understand that if you want to be in this gymnasium the next time that they convene this, then you're going to play nice with the campaign. That's simply what access journalism is. And while there may or may not be an ideological tilt here, the fact that somebody wants to be able to be the reporter that brings back this quote or this video or this sound that is a career motivator for why you're going to ask the questions that you're going to ask which is the long way of me saying that by and large all but one that we'll get to at the end we're softballs. So we reported yesterday that President Trump was briefed as early as March of 2019 that Russia had ordered or offered uh, bounties to the Taliban for the killing of U.S. soldiers. Uh, the polls, though, today show you with a, a sizable national lead, a lead in a lot of the states that are critical in the Electoral College. I wonder where do you think the race stands at this moment? What keeps you up at night uh, as you look ahead? And can you maintain this advantage? You requested a classified briefing as you would be entitled to as the nominee. Has, has the administration offered you a classified briefing? And then... I'm not saying that any of these questions are particularly shameful, but, you know, I mean, if you look at what the inverse would be as the first questions that Trump would get in, a, a, you know, two months, which, number one, I mean, there would be no... The, the first question that Trump would get after two months of not talking to the media would be, why aren't you talking, why haven't you talked to us in two months? That would be the first question. But beyond that, it's like, all right, a, can we please get a comment on the scandal of the moment of your opponent? Why do you think you're so awesome? Can I please ask a follow-up about the scandal of the moment? Again, not bad, but you know they're not exactly probing to the candidate himself. We did get one question about tearing down monuments. That's something that Biden, who is running as more of a moderate, is going to have to walk a trickier line on. And I think he handled that one okay. But really, there was only one moment, one moment where a live round got fired from the press gallery. It's at the very end of the question and answer. The campaign had tried to end this. Biden had said he only had one more question and he had to go. And he took one last uh, one last reporter 
And that reporter got three questions, and it was the third that was the only thing I believe is a question that the Biden campaign didn't want to hear. Last, last question real quick. Some have speculated You're a sir, line, that, that, you, that you are subject to some degree of cognitive decline. I'm 65. I don't have word recollection that I used to have. I forget my train of thought from time to time. You got 12 years on me, sir. Are, have you been tested for some degree of cognitive decline? Oh, baby! I've been tested and I'm constantly tested. Look, all, you, all I got to do is watch me and I can hardly wait to compare my cognitive capability to the cognitive capability of the man I'm running against. Thank you so much. There is a defensiveness to Joe Biden that I don't believe wears particularly well when he is in tight situations. I believe that this Q&A would have gone a lot different if one of those questions happened earlier in the process because I think Biden gets rattled. I think we have enough evidence to say in this campaign specifically, in 2020, I don't know about in the past, but in 2020, if you hit him with something he doesn't want to hear, he gets flustered and he gets defensive. If I were Biden 2020, I would want to draw the line of decency around the issue of cognitive decline. I would say, come on, guys. Look, all my medical records are public. Uh, I'm going to leave it up to the American people to, to decide whether or not if I have the judgment to be president of the United States. Make it about judgment. Don't make it about whether or not I'm slurring my words or I'm, I'm not able to uh, you know, make full sentences. Because it seems like Joe Biden wants a fight on mental cognition. And whether or not you believe that Biden's brain is more or less pudding than Trump's brain, Trump's brain has been trained as a entertainer for decades. Biden's has it. His speeches sound like Senate speeches. They don't sound interesting. They don't sound fun. And that's part of the difference between these two candidates. If I were him, I would not want to fight on that at all. But it seems like he does. And I know for a fact that the Trump campaign is going to pick on him for doing it. Now, in the intervening 24 hours, it seems like the media narrative has really stuck with Biden's harsh words on coronavirus, unsurprising. Trump tweets out that Biden got a softball parade because he had the list of questions that he was going to get beforehand. I don't think that's true, but I don't know if it necessarily matters if he knew what questions were coming in, because by and large, all the questions were really favorable to him. The question now becomes... How long until the next one of these? How long until the next question and answer session? If I were the Trump campaign, I would be setting up a timer. From the second that Biden uh, leaves that podium, say it has been X long since he's spoken to the press. Force him into these situations. Because he's gonna get some questions like that. 
and I think it's going to reveal weaknesses in his campaign. Now, that would be an argument for Hyde Biden. That you should just say, whatever, who cares if they have a running clock? We have a running poll average, and it's over double digits, and so we want to keep that. It's interesting. We'll see what happens. An unprecedented election during a health crisis and reaction tonight pouring in from across the nation as former Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper defends former State Speaker Andrew Romanoff. So Hick now will take on incumbent Republican Senator Cory Gardner in November. Hick made quick work and it was a quick night uh, in the uh, Senate race to secure the Democratic nomination. So votes are still being counted, but a uh, 20-point lead at the very least. And we kick off our coverage tonight. We've got some Democratic primary results for you that very much could affect where the Senate goes in the fall. Obviously, uh, we're going to find out how big the coattails are for either Trump or Biden. But as you heard at the beginning, John Hickenlooper survives a month that involved him defying a subpoena for corruption charges and a videotape leaking of him saying that being a politician was akin to being a slave on a slave ship. He's also had some uh, all lives mattery problems in the past, but uh, not enough to get Andrew Romanoff within 20 points. Not even sniffing distance for the progressive challenger. That means that Hickenlooper goes from presidential candidate earlier this year to Senate candidate to Senate Democratic nominee in a very favorable race against Cory Gardner. Cory Gardner has found himself to be a man without a country. He was elected as a Republican in a very independently minded, if not bluing, a purple to blue state. He was elected as somebody that would have an open mind and has since found himself like many elected officials given the choice on whether or not they were on the Trump train or they were getting left off. And so Cory Gardner has decided that he has hitched himself to Trump. Trump came out there in February as part of his little West Coast swing uh, that ended with the Las Vegas rally that I went to. And he was pumping up people for Gardner. But now Gardner's going to have to face that question with Hickenlooper peppering him on the Trump of it all, does Gardner go full MAGA or does he distance himself from Trump knowing that that's not exactly what his constituents particularly want to hear from him? But that is not the most consequential Senate race. No, that is what it is. The most consequential Senate race will be Senate Majority Leader Cocaine Mitch McConnell going up against Amy McGrath, the centrist Democratic leadership-backed candidate. She survives a squeaker that took a week to suss out who the victor was 
against Charlie Booker. He got the constellation of progressive stars to come out for him. But not enough. Not enough. Amy McGrath. And this one was weird. Like, I, I, I was seeing numbers within three hours of Amy McGrath being named the winner where Booker was up by five points. But, you know, as we illustrated last week, this is part of the thought of a heavily mail-in ballot election is that you're going to see some lag time on this, especially in states that have not worked with mail-in balloting on a massive scale before. So this is the point in the segment where I have to ask the question. I'm sorry, progressives. Is the progressive message resonating with Democrats nationwide? I think in cities, it's undeniable. You know, if you're AOC, you are somebody that uh, is going to have an advantage over a more anchored centrist candidate. But when you get out here into the red and purple, when you get out here into Kentucky, when you get out here into Colorado, does the progressive message ring as loud? And more so, it seemed like Corey Gardner was very excited to try and run against Andrew Romanoff. I think Cocaine Mitch is fine to run against anybody, but I think he would have uh, had an easier time selling Kentuckians that Charlie Booker was going to take away every freedom they ever had because he was progressive. I do think that the electability argument is something that hurts progressives. Progressives need to build brick by brick their electability argument. Now, elections are binary. You either win or you lose. So there's only so much you can do before you stack wins. But this, much like the Tea Party had, will haunt those campaigns. The electability argument will haunt those campaigns until that reputation has been purged. Guys, I think this is the month. I do. I think this is the month that all of us who make this show possible declare ourselves to the rest of the political podcasting landscape and say, we are here. By my estimation, and some of these numbers are weird, there are less than 200 podcasts on the planet that have more than 1,000 patrons. Now, there's a lot that have a lot more than that, right? They got tens of thousands, but 1,000 is an achievement. And that's why when I say that we are on the way to 1K, I say it with pride. I say it because 
not only have you guys supported me, but I feel like I have tried to put in the time, the effort, and refunding the money back into the show for travel to give you guys what you want. This is a virtuous circle, and I hope that it is worthwhile to many of you. Well, I, I know that it is because you, you put your money where your mouth is. And I believe that at the end of July, by the end of July, we will not see a day in August where we don't have 1,000 patrons. The current number is in flux because it's the first of the month and Patreon does some weird stuff about uh, taking people. Anyway, you can't really count on it right now, but right now it says 960. I think it's closer to 970. That means less than 30 people. Less than 30 people. If you are one of those 30 listening to me right now, you can go ahead and toss in a dollar. One dollar an episode to be in our big tent tier. If you really want the extra content, you can head on in to our $3 club. Get a bonus episode on Monday, a bonus episode on Thursday. If you want to be part of our Titanic $10 tier, get your name read at the end of the program, go do that. If you are a fancy pants and want to be in our donor class, get the private chat room, your name in a, a fancy uh, bumper at the beginning, that's also something for you. I won't get all weepy like I normally do during these things, but just know that this is the most personal project that I work on. And the fact that you guys have responded like this is something that I'll never forget. The way to 1K ends in July. That's my belief. Tossing my hat over the wall. Thank you to everybody who supports us. Take politics seriously is where you go. Our guest today is Risa Brooks. She's a professor in the Department of Political Science at Marquette University. And we are going to talk about the Trump administration's politicization or politicization. I always struggle with that word of the military, uh, including some of the recent protests and uh, how the military brass has reacted to Trump. But first, let's go ahead and welcome Risa. Risa, welcome to the show. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. All right. So uh, specifically, when we look at uh, how the protests have unfolded, this seems to be the most recent side of uh, uh, the Trump administration's uh, issues with the military and and how he has reacted to them. So let's start there. Uh, uh, Trump calling for the National Guard to be deployed to settle uh, uh, protests and rioting in certain cities. Uh, how rare is a, a, a call for something like that? And where does it put the military in terms of its relationship 
with civilians? Yeah, those are great questions. So the National Guard is a little different than um, what Trump was actually proposing at the, at the extreme. Um, the National Guard is usually under the authority of state governors. It's sort of a modern-day militia. And um, in that capacity, it's often used for different purposes, for natural disasters, um, on occasion to assist with some kind of civil dis- disturbance. Um, and that is not all that unusual. What Trump was proposing, though, was something more. Um, what he was actually advocating in his comments with, uh, in a call with governors and the Secretary of Defense, I believe on June 1, um, was actually bringing active duty or regular military to the streets to confront protests. And this is far more unusual and far more controversial. Um, in, it has happened. In 1992, in the midst of the riots that followed the verdict um, of the trial for the police officers um, in the Rodney King case, there were there was pretty massive, um, for those who remember, uh, social disturbances, um, days of rioting, yeah, you know, thousands of fires, just total breakdown, and some active duty military federal troops were sent to assist police in that case. Um, however. To propose this in the face of largely peaceful protests, and I think it is important to acknowledge, especially early on, there were some cases of some pretty severe property damage, and I think it's important to not minimize that because that affects people's lives and livelihoods. Saying that, though, we had not reached the point of a breakdown in massive social disorder of the kind that one even saw in 1992, let alone worse. And so but what Trump saw or what he was doing and what was so alarming and elicited the reactions is sort of this opportunity to send the military into the streets um, when it wasn't clearly justified or needed um, in order to demonstrate to the American public that the military is on his side and will re- enforce his particular um, you know, partisan position and his particular sort of law and order characterization of what needed to be done, which is a pretty inflammatory concept in itself. Um, So that's what really freaked everybody out, including a bunch of retired um, general officers um, who responded and spoke out in opposition in various ways to that proposal, um, to that proposition of using the regular military, military that's usually used for against external adversaries for the purposes of policing American citizens, by and large, who are protesting peacefully. So one of the things that seems to be in the current president's playbook is uh, uh, the very tough talk early so as to ward off things uh, uh you know, that, that that might be on the horizon. He has done this in terms of international stuff, which would obviously involves the military as well, and we can get to that in a second. But just so we can underline this particular issue, even if this is just Donald Trump saying the military is on the table to settle these issues if they are not settled naturally, that does put a strain on the you know, the, the, the tenuous line between the military's relationship with the civilian sphere of government, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think it's doing, there's two things to think about. Um, first is sort of the signaling to the American pop, 
people, right? He's been, since he came into office, um, let me back up a little bit. Normally, presidents sort of abide by particular conventions and how they treat and regard the military. So they respect, and okay, violations occur, but generally they respect the military, military's nonpartisan stance in American politics, right? Military maintains that through law, through regulation, through norms, et cetera. Um, Trump has since the beginning, you know, in his norm-defying presidency, he's not abided by those norms either. And so has, has treated the military as his partisan ally. And it's manifested in all sorts of different ways. Um, he's, you know, referred to in front of active duty military audiences to them voting for him. He's used resources um, of the military. I mean, he wanted to have this big military parade at one point, which um, was sort of slow rolled. There are, you know, examples of him signing his very controversial so-called Muslim ban in the Hall of Heroes in the Pentagon with uh, Secretary Jim Mattis, who's often referred to as Marine General Jim Mattis in the background. So Trump has done a lot of different things, and there's many more examples I could come up with. And so whether or not those troops were going to end up on the street, what he's saying to the American people, and you just have to read his tweets because the military is referenced in them during this period of time, is the military is on my side. Look, they will do what I want. And he's trying to, you know, turn the military into a partisan actor in the eyes of American citizens, but also in the eyes of some in the military. And I think that's um, partly what's so worrisome for some of the, those who did speak out was the idea that he's going to under, undermine that nonpartisan ethos within the military itself by doing these kinds of things. And I'll just say one other piece about this, which, which is worrisome, whether or not troops end up, ended up on the street. And they didn't in this, time, in this case, right? Yeah. Um, the National Guard, so from what we can tell and what we know, um, at, in, in, to, in order to forestall, to prevent those troops from pre- being put on the street, Secretary of Defense Esper, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, um, decided that, or in some capacity, and we don't know exactly how, some um, direction was given to the National Guard forces in D.C. to sort of amp up their aggressive, aggressiveness of their response, to demonstrate that they had things under control. And it was done in order to prevent Trump from wanting to send the military to the streets. And so then in response, we get those incidents and several people, many people have seen or heard about these things in which the helicopters are sort of hovering over protesters in D.C. neighborhoods, demonstrating, quote unquote, presence in order to show that the National Guard is tough and able to handle it. And so you get perversities like that and, you know, sort of the characterization of the military as this partisan player, um, whether or not the troops end up in the street or not. So it's still worrisome and concerning for those of us who pay attention to U.S. civil military relations. So part of this is is maintaining the idea that the military, while it is probably no social secret that many leadership and rank and file through the military, although certainly not universally, might lean conservative, uh, that they are still a a loyal ally to whatever civilian government uh, is is there. And, And the idea of putting out on Front Street that there is a a tighter ideological bond between a conservative president and the military is inherently damaging to that. Exactly, right? 
So the idea is you inculcate, socialize officers that whatever their politics are in private, and it is true that especially the officer corps does lean Republican and has for a long time, um, or ideologically conservative, which doesn't always align with Republican, as we know, um, but that, that, that that happens. And that the idea is that once you're in that role, you serve the government of the United States, you serve the Constitution, especially officers take an oath to the Constitution, and you act in your best capacity to, you know, help and and serve all Americans. And if officers don't separate their private political identity from their roles as military professionals, we are all in trouble. Um, No country ever does well when the military acts like a partisan political actor, um, whether that's in democracies or non-democracies. And so violating that very basic ethic or eroding it is worrisome. And that, and, and believe me, that is why all, many of these retired generals, who many of them are probably Republicans, right? But yeah. they're more concerned about that larger principle of nonpartisanship, of maintaining the basic framework of civilian control of the military and how that works. Um, and so, yeah, it is, it is concerning. Um, and it's, it's not, it's happened, you know, with a lot of institutions. And now we're sort of seeing, you know, this sort of partisan affront to um, another institution, the military, which is a pretty formidable actor in domestic politics and very, very well socially respected, too, um, and would be a powerful ally to cultivate if one were able to. um, And certainly Trump has been trying to. Let me talk about another element of how Trump has reacted to uh, uh, you know, military leadership. He, even from his earliest days on the campaign stump, uh, used to uh, make reference to the fact that he knew more about ISIS than the generals have. He is somebody that, as you'd mentioned before, is norm-defying, eroding, or outright breaking. The Pentagon, as I have understood it as a civilian, is something that very much clings to rank and norms and uh, uh, the, the the structure around them uh, uh, that has been created over years of service. Uh, it seems like there is a strained relationship between Donald Trump and at least the Pentagon itself. How did that set the stage for what we saw where, you know, all of a sudden the secretary of defense is, is whispered about being on the hot seat and you have a bunch of retired generals, uh, you know, uh, saying that that the president has overstepped his bounds. I mean, I think it's been a complicated relationship from the beginning with him, but it is important to say it's usually, it's often a complicated relationship um, among presidents and the military in different ways. Um, And so just that feature is not unusual. Um, I think basically... You know, there are things that Donald Trump has done that some in the military, and it's important to sort of break it down. There are not monolithic views no. um, within no. even the senior leadership, right? And, and you can even see that playing out today um, a bit. There, you know, but some in the military leadership, um, some officers in particular, were probably really happy with the amount of authority that Donald Trump delegated them in sort of operational matters. So basically, Trump has handed off the running of military operations overseas 
to the military, you know, to the military itself yeah. in Syria, in Iraq, in Afghanistan. And, um, you know, and he's he's sort of no, I mean, his political instincts, whatever it is, he sort of has understood that that's a popular thing to do. You know, all organizations like autonomy and hate so-called micromanagement, right? So you're sort of currying favor by allowing the military to kind of do what it feels it needs to do or the military leadership to do that. Now, whether that's good or bad or the outcomes of that, one could have a whole debate about that. But that is a feature of what has gone on. And um, so some might have liked that, you know, being unleashed. They complained about Obama micromanaging all of the time. It was such a common refrain or pushback. Um, so that's probably positive. I would say some of the positions that Trump has taken, especially the ones on working with U.S. allies, has been much more controversial. The abandonment of the Kurds, um, the pullout of you know, troops in Syria, the most recent issue with the troops um, in Germany and reducing numbers there, those things are exceedingly controversial, especially amongst the senior most military leadership um, who works with allies and um, feels that that's an important basis for U.S. national security. So I think it's a mixed bag depending on what issue. I do think that the effort to portray the military as a partisan ally is something that goes against the grain of this effort to maintain a nonpartisan ethos. Now, that nonpartisan ethos is in hot water in some respects. That's not, there are issues with that. Um, but I think that the sense that it's something to aspire to and try to work to, to retain, at least among the most senior folks, is, is important. And, and, that, and that's very troubling that Trump does not respect that particular set of norms. You made mention that a bunch of retired generals spoke out about this uh, uh, when he made his comments in June. As you also mentioned, uh, the decisions of the president uh, uh, very rarely are universally applauded amongst the Pentagon. How yeah. uh, how how rare is it for a, a contingent of retired generals to speak out uh, about a decision or a statement the president has made? I mean, I guess I guess it is also sure. uh, you know it is it is of, of noting that this was literally just a statement and not necessarily even a decision. Right. Um, well, I think that even though it wasn't, you mean a decision he actually hadn't sent the forces to the street. Yeah. Now, they were sitting yeah. out in D.C. I mean, they had been deployed. They were prepared. So it isn't sure. like it was completely hypothetical, gotcha. um, especially elements of the 82nd Airborne, which is, is no sort of, you know, casual military force. I mean, that's an intense unit to, to elements to be bringing to potentially put on U.S. streets. Um Basically, so I think that, like, I'm trying to formulate, essentially, I think that what, you know, why did they do this? How rare is it? Um, thinking back, it has happened before. So in 2006, um, several retired generals, spoke out against then Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld, especially about his leadership in the Iraq war. Mm -hmm. And that got a lot of press. It's referred to as the revolt of the generals. Um, and since Trump's time, since he became president, there have been instances in which retired generals have spoken out about issues. So, for example, um, the Syria issue, pulling troops from Syria, um, things like that, 
Um, sometimes they've even talked about his leadership on occasion. Um, uh, Admiral McRaven um, spoke out about that um, in the past um, in particular. Um, and so we've seen this periodically. But I guess the volume, the number, the sort of stridency of the comments, um, the sort of amount of reaction that this particular incident elicited is really striking. And in particular, a lot of people will note that um, former Secretary of Defense, Marine General Jim Mattis, was forefront in making these comments. And that's striking because after Trump, um, you know, after Trump was president, he asked Jim Mattis to be Secretary of Defense. That was really, mm-hmm. um, you know, popular. He was in that position, I think it was about a year, and then he resigned. Um, and Mattis, you know, very clearly says, I am not going to talk about a sitting president. I am not going to say what I think about him. And so yeah. for him to come out and, and not just criticize the potential decision, but to criticize Donald Trump's leadership and to make these statements about, you know, this is the first president who's, ever, who's never sought to unite the American people was really pretty striking. I would say among, you know, uh, retired officer dissent, this sort of ranks up there as the top um, thing we've seen in, you know, a very long time in U.S. history. Because Matt- Mattis was somewhat of a controversial figure before he came back as Secretary of Defense, correct? He he had he um, had a falling out with, with the uh, uh, Obama administration in, in the Pentagon? Yeah, I mean... I think that what happened, you know, other people know more about this sort of uh, inside details. Sure, of that. sure. But from what I understand, um, that was mostly a disagreement about policy issues, national security yeah. issues, um, in particular about Iran and sort of um, views toward Iran. And so I think that that is a sort of more conventional kind of dispute or conflict tension that could happen between a president um, and a uh, you know, senior military officer like that, um, and not the kind of sort of affronts and challenges that Trump has posed, which are just of a whole different level of um, you know, phenomenon compared to what we've seen in recent presidents, all of the recent presidents, I would say, regardless of party. What kind of legacy do you think this leaves? Is this something that, uh, uh, you know, let's say Joe Biden as running for reelection, uh, you know, makes mention to or or, or uh, Curry's favor with, uh, uh, you know, disgruntled military leaders to say, I won't be this guy? Or is Donald Trump as an outsider just universally going to be understood as somebody who does not know how to play this game and therefore... Uh, anybody who replaces him will know more about how the how the norms are are to be enforced. Well, that's the million dollar question, right? Like, do we yeah. go back to normal, or is this, you know, have we opened the floodgates? Are we done? You know, are we, you know, in new territory? Um, I would say it seems to me somebody, especially like Joe Biden, who has worked in government for so long and understands and has had his own you know, squabbles over policy issues with some in the military when he was vice president, for example, Um, I think he understands the norms. And I would say that he'd be more likely to respect them than say, definitely than if Trump gets a second term. Um, 
the the thing that I think is the legacy that is is worrisome is the way that the American people view the military. We already know right now we know that the U.S. military is the most popular um, institution in the country and has been for a long time. And it's not just that it's the most popular. I mean it. It's that other institutions are fare so poorly and are so poorly regarded by Americans. And so you've got this dynamic of this imbalance of respect. And now you have, and, and even though that's true, it, there's a, a growing partisan gap in reverence for the military. So Republicans generally, even though many Democrats revere the military, are much more likely to do, to do that. And recent research has been showing that that, that partisan gap holds up. And so you have that in place. And now you have these retired officers and people don't necessarily distinguish that they're retired. And even if they do, they think they're speaking on behalf of active duty anyway, yeah. who can't speak. Out. Um, and now they're acting you know, like anti-Trump generals, Right. And that if you parse the messages for the most part, with the exception of Mattis, I would say, and maybe a few others, it's really not against Donald Trump. It's a, in asserting a particular set of norms, and it's a more complex message. But the takeaway is that some generals don't like Trump, right? And so yeah. what's, the, what's the other end of that? Oh, some generals do like Trump. And we haven't seen those guys yet, guys and gals, right? So, But we may. And, and the American people starts to think about the um, military as being comprised of uh, Republicans and Democrats, um, the leadership. And then, you know, and, and we're on the path to that. We've been on the path to that. Um, and that's, I think, the legacy that's really difficult to undo. And the one that, that, that really has alarmed a lot of the retired military people that we've been hearing speaking out. And that's, that's the worrisome thing, I think, for a lot of civil military relations analysts. It seems like even on the other side of, of your hypothetical that we haven't heard a lot from pro-Trump generals, that even that tit for tat erodes what the, the, you know, the, the, the social norms that you're talking about. You don't want there to be a back and forth on like, well, I like this president. And if you're going to be talking bad about him, then I want to be talking good about him. Like that, that seems antithetical to the, uh, uh, you know, oh, the, the military will work with anybody. Absolutely. That is the nightmare scenario. And so I've been waiting. I've been watching. And I think maybe that hasn't happened because of the stuff that Trump has done with especially sort of intervening in the war crimes cases and, um, you know, granting clemency, things like that. I mean, that's just so, you know, offensive to a lot of people in the military. Um, so Trump is really I mean, he may not have that many generals that are quote unquote, his generals, to use his language. Um, yeah. And so maybe that's, I haven't seen it. But what I am worried about is we're getting to an election. And since the 1990s, and this didn't happen before the 1990s, really, um, we've seen retired generals endorsing political candidates on both sides of the aisle. And right now, it's sort of like, let's race to get our list together and who's going to endorse us and how many are on there. And so, you know, we saw that also with, um, you know, the conventions with um, ge competing generals um, speaking about the Republican and Democratic conventions this past um, past election 2016. And so what does the retired officer endorsement dynamic look like this time? Does it look like let's just sign a form and say, you know, sign a letter and say we like so and so for president, we like Joe Biden, we like Donald Trump, or does it get more vitriolic? 
does it turn into what we haven't yet seen, which is this discussion and competition among the generals allying with different leaders? And how does the American public, which if, if the military is acting like they're co-partisan, meaning they agree with it, they like that. And there's research on that too, that, that they're going to welcome that and that's going to, you know, add to this dynamic and contribute is the incentive structures are all really not favoring maintenance of sort of a nonpartisan ethic right now. Um, and we're, you know, I'm hoping that we it doesn't get worse and doesn't manifest differently with the endorsement cycle this time around, but it could. And um, yeah, it's it's pretty troubling times. Um, but that right but now. that is and, that that would be the place to watch. The place to watch is is uh, uh you know the the general endorsement count and general is in you know rank and not the average like like but but looking to see the military endorsements that come out this cycle. And 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 how that shows up, what they say, how it's characterized, how it's received. I think that's one place to watch. Um, yeah. I think we don't know, you know, we don't know what else is going to happen between now and November. And there could be more incidents um, and more controversies that come up that will elicit this pro anti-Trump sort of generals lining up. Um, hope, I, I think that they are, especially the, the ones who are, you know, been in for decades, really understand the dangers of that and, um, you know, worry about that. But I think, you know, that could happen too. And hopefully it won't. That is a norm that's difficult to reestablish once you violated it. Um, and I am think that all of us to, uh, who work on these issues um, think that it's an important norm to uphold. Um, and so hopefully it won't happen, but those are the kinds of things I would be watching for in the coming months. Well, and we will be watching them, uh, watching for them as well, because we had Risa Brooks on, a professor of, uh, <laughs> in the Department of Political Science at Marquette University. Uh, uh, please, everybody, we're going to link this with the show notes, but go ahead and check out her recent article in the Journal of International Security on U.S. Civil Military Relations. A lot of the same issues that we talked about here. She goes into far more detail there, so please go ahead and give it a read. But in the meantime, Risa, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been fun. And that will end our show for today. Apologies for the audio on the uh, interview. Recorded it last week while I was in quarantine. We'll work on a better situation for that. Anyhow. Titanic $10 tier. They keep me in business. Modesto's own Logan Cisco. Just another pilot. Thor, NH, Blumpkin, Chad, Headphones, Neil, Water Ice Scoop, MacBook Pro, Dallas Danger, Taylor, Middle Age Mike, DTNS, Hack 5, Brad, Wicked, Uncle Schick, Utah, Jimmy Montana, Frozen Summer, Zack and Cheese, Captain Bunzo, Zombie Doc, Berkeley, Steven, your boy, Craig, Troublefilm.com, Robert, Mr. Tallyman, D-Laser, I Poop My Pants, Government Unfiltered, Spawn, Jerry Tolbert, Gamer Goo, Andres, Archie, Jay Milius, The Gen, Emily, Olin and Angela, DL, Brian, insert scoop name, Nomadic Terran, Miranda Janelle, Robert, Herschel, Glenn, Wolf, Chili Scoop, Richard, Nick, Random Complexity, and Andrew. You want to join their ranks, you head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. And again, we are, depending on when you hear this, likely uh, within 30 patrons Within 30 patrons of the of 1,000, 
the big 1K, the way to 1K. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. You want to follow me on the internet, you can go on to Twitter, at Justin R. Young. If you want to get me on Instagram, same thing. You want to send me an email. We, we are bringing back Mailbag on Friday. The people have spoken. It even has a new theme song. So come on back for that. If you want to be part of it, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Yell at me for my Biden takes. And uh, that'll be it. Till next time. A reminder that some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more talk about politics, but this is the only show that dares to talk about Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>